You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. We've got a really great program for you this month with author Alex Poppy on Writing with Purpose, and a bit from Radio Misfits hosts Rick and Dave and their conversation with best-selling author Scott Turow. We'll get to all that after a few announcements and a bit of news for writers. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. The International Journalist Network has a call for journalists. Pay $200. This was posted September 6th. 2022. They ask that before filling out the form, please familiarize yourself with the IJNet content. They are a resource for journalists, and all their content focuses on the field of journalism. For tips on pitching IJNet, visit the link below from creativewritingnews.com. Think you have a great book that would also make a great movie? Then check out tips and advice from Gene Bowerman's piece in Writer's Digest titled Take Two. How to Adapt a Book into a Screenplay When adapting a novel for film, Script Magazine editor Bowerman says that the number one job is to tell an amazing story, enhancing it for the format. A link to that piece is in the notes below. Wright City Magazine, the exclusive online magazine from the Chicago Writers Association, is currently closed for poetry submissions. But we are still accepting short stories and creative nonfiction and flash. For submission guidelines, click on the Wright City Magazine tab and go to Submission Guidelines in the drop-down. If your work is accepted, CWA will pay you, upon publication, $50 to members, $25 to non-members per prose piece, and $35 for members, and $10 for non-members per poem. Details at chicagorights.org. Also, from writersdigest.com, from Elizabeth Sims, 100 Ways to Buff Your Book. Does your manuscript need a little more definition, but you're not sure where to begin? Try these 100 tips to give your words more power. Among the things she suggests are clear your work area. My wife keeps threatening to use a shovel on mine. Print out a copy and read it slowly. You'll catch things your eye skims over on the screen. Cogent advice that we heard from Elizabeth Wetmore at this year's Let's Just Write conference. Aim high for anything, words per day, books per day, sales per quarter, a top publisher, or simply the satisfaction of having done your very best. In other words, set strong goals. Crop out any narrative preachiness. Let your readers draw their own moral conclusions from your brilliant character and plot. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. 
on. Learn word processing software's search and replace function. If you're not good at it, force yourself to get better. Word has a number of neat features from editing with time-saving features like find and replace and this often overlooked feature, the editor tab, not to be confused with the editing tab. The editor's tab offers your manuscript an overall score from 0 to 100 for mechanical aspects and readability, spelling and grammar, clarity, conciseness, punctuation conventions, and even a tab to check for similarity to online sources. Check out the other 95 tips at writersdigest.com by clicking on the link in the notes below. The Chicago Writers Association is throwing a party October 14, 2022 at the beautiful Warwick Allerton Hotel, 701 North Michigan Avenue in Chicago from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. There will be food, drinks, music, live lit. This event is free to CWA members. $10 for non-members, but you must register soon as space is very limited. And this is also, by the way, a great opportunity to join CWA for only $25 a year. Visit chicagorights.org. Are you writing a novel? Submit the first chapter of your work up to 10 pages to the Chicago Writers Association's 7th Annual First Chapter Contest, which is open for entries right now. The deadline is October 1st, 2022. Winners will be announced by December 2022. A non-refundable fee of $15 must be made online on the same date as the author's entry is submitted. You must be a current member of the Chicago Writers Association. A link to join CWA for the annual fee of just $25 is in the notes below and start enjoying a wealth of member benefits. For details, visit the contest tab at your ultimate writer's resource, chicagorights.org. You never know when you might run into a CWA member anywhere in the world. Author Alex Poppy writes with purpose. In Jinwar and other stories, Alex follows a rape survivor from a less than fulfilling job working in a hot dog shaped food truck during the Kavanaugh hearings to Jinwar, an all female village in Mbato Rojava in northeastern Syria. Alex Poppy is the author of four critically acclaimed novels. In 2021, she was an artist in residence at the Atlantic Center for the Arts, where she began working on a memoir through essays about her time working in northern Iraq. Alex Poppy's latest book is Duende, a coming-of-age novella about mothers and daughters. Her website is alexpoppe.com. It is so good to have you with us here today. Thank you, Bill. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for Chicago Writers Association also for having me and, and highlighting my work. It was such a serendipitous uh, way that we met. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, I have to say, right off the bat, uh just having read uh, Jinwar and and other stories, uh, I, I'm I'm a fan. It was an exceptional book. Thank you. And and not only not only that, it was poignant and powerful, and it it put me inside at least as much as as a woman can with a man. Put me inside the body of a woman and and her experiences and and seeing through her eyes. That's so important. Yeah, thank you. Um, so often, you know, the book is takes place mostly in the Middle East and the stories we have are told by men and they're usually about war and they're about men's point of view and women really are the ones that bear the brunt of war because they are often 
Um, they often suffer rape as a weapon of war, and they're there holding families together and communities together during conflict. Yeah. And they're intrinsic yeah. in rebuilding communities post-conflict. And we don't have enough stories from their voices. Um, we don't have enough stories from their perspectives, and we don't have enough stories that also celebrate these places that we only know from news or from films. I've had the good fortune to live there and see the other side besides, you know, the war-torn side that we see on mm -hmm. media. There, there's beautiful ritual and customs and it's such a welcoming community. It's a kind community um, and very embracing of strangers and embracing of others in a way. When I came back to the United States and saw the intense political divide in my own country, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of shocking. You know, yeah. we have so much here and most a lot of places that I've lived because they're post-conflict and they're developing, they have so little. And then, you know, we're we're so divided and, and fighting over things like vaccines, whereas the places I've come from, they can't even get hands on vaccines for most of the population. It's it was discombobulating to come back. I came back last year and it's 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 just surreal to see my country now having this other perspective of being abroad for so long. It's it's a bit shocking. I remember uh, it was 48 hours. I was uh, I was on the front line in Sarajevo until I touched down in Chicago and took a taxi to Lincoln Park, where I was living at the time here in uh, in Chicago. And I had I had been in a city for a number of months uh, and in a country that didn't have electricity or running water or even windows and getting out of the taxi cab. Uh, it was right in front of a, 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 a restaurant and seeing people laughing and dining in well-lit and comfortable glass encased buildings was, was a, was a culture shock. And we'll, we'll get more into, into your, your experiences and how important and informative for a writer those experiences are. But I wanted to start here first. So Genoir came out in March and you quickly followed up with Duende in June. So there's, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a synergy between those two books, War, Women, and PTSD. What was your algorithm for, for that quick follow-up? Well, Jinmar got postponed because of pandemic. They both okay. were acquired in September of 2020. Uh -huh. And normally uh -huh. it takes about two years from acquisition to publication. Kune Press, who put out Jinmar, Regal House Publishing put out Duende, and they're both indie presses, but I think uh -huh. Regal House is a bit more established. They were just named uh, one of Forward Indies Publishers of the Year, whereas Kune is, I think, a little bit smaller and yeah. kind of still yeah. finding its way. And so uh, Scott, the publisher at Kune Press, thought he would get this book out right away. And it was going to be slated for uh, Women's Day of 2021. It didn't happen. Then we were trying to coincide with the International Day of Elimination of Violence Against Women, which is in November. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen. Yeah. And so then it was pushed to 2022 for a pandemic. But I was writing them at the same time when I was in Iraq. So Jinmar started out as Room 308, a, a short story in my first book, which was a collection called Girl World. And I, I wanted to work with that narrator again. I really like that narrator. This It's a nameless narrator whose uh -huh. her mind is unraveling. Like the sentences in the beginning of the novella go on for paragraphs because her mind is spiraling. And I, I mean, I think healing is a 
long process and I had someone say, you know, you don't really resolve the ending. And I, and I, I think that victims, some victims of war don't completely recover. I think that we, oh. I think it's interesting who we become as life scrapes and scars us up. And I think some people got through it and some people don't, and some do with a varying degree of, of healing. But I, yeah. I think we're all yeah. ultimately changed. I don't think we are who we were before, prior trauma or loss or violence. So I had, I didn't know what was going to happen with that narrator. And then I was traveling in Portugal and I met this young woman who said she had worked at a hot dog truck shaped like a penis. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that is what my narrator stuck doing. Because once you've been dishonorably discharged, you don't have access to student loans and to health care. And it's yeah. really hard for people to reestablish their lives if they've been dishonorably discharged from the military. So that kind of made sense. And then I had access to ISIS, to to footage going through the ISIS tunnels because my friend's husband is a journalist and a translator and he had the footage. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking at it and I thought, oh, this is so interesting. And then someone had told me about this bar or place near the university where I was teaching that he was, he was a Greek man and he, some Kurdish people had taken him to this bar and he said, Alex, he's like, these women were dancing on the stage and one girl was my daughter's age. My daughter's 13. And I thought they had like lays around their neck. Closer he looked, he realized they were, it was money. So the Kurdish money is colored. The lowest denominator might be like a dark blue. And then like the 5,000s are like red and then the 10,000s are green. And so the lays were colors. It was basically how much to buy the women. Oh my God. That image lodged in my head. It was, you know, like a minute of conversation. It lodged in my head. And I, I always knew I would write to it, but I didn't know how I would get there. So I wrote that story to that image and finished it in 2019 when I was mm -hmm. at an art residency in Cadiz working on Duende. I had won an art residency to finish, to fin to work on Duende because it's flamenco is the metaphor for coming of age. Mm -hmm. And Cadiz is Andalusia, Spain, and it's like some people say the birthplace of flamenco. So I had been going back and forth over a couple of years to write that novella, which ultimately turned out to be very lyrical, but not, I had started out with like this dystopian tale set in Detroit and it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And I love flamenco. I used it in my second book, um, Moxie. I just really fell in love with the art form. And so whatever kind of gets stuck in my head ends up in my fiction. And that's, I mean, so that's how it happens. It's not, it's, it's, it's never planned. Was there a, a marketing challenge in both books coming out at the, at the same time with different publishers or has it, what's, what's been, what's been the benefit of the pros and cons of, of, of that, uh, that, that kind of dual release? I don't think it's been helpful um, because both of them are indie publishers. They yeah. don't have, yeah. you know, the marketing power behind them that a commercial mm -hmm. publisher would have. I also ha haven't lived here for such a long time. I, I wouldn't say that I'm part of a community yet. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to get people to come out to bookstores for events. And if they come out for one, they might not want to come out for another. So we, I'm strategic about where I pitched having readings so that okay. it would be among different bookstores, like Women and Children's First hosted one for Genoir. Um, I was in conversation with Kate Weisel, who wrote uh, the Drew Hines Award winner, Driving Cars with Homeless Men, but it was mm -hmm. still pandemic and we were online. 
And then Susie Takis gave me a beautiful party at the bookseller for Duende. That was did lovely. you was... did you reach out because I think this is important for a lot of a lot of authors who were looking for for some of those those critical blurbs uh, to help help market their books. Did you reach out to them uh, or or have they they read your books? Oh no, I asked. I contacted the bookstores for Ginoir, and then I hired publicist Cheryl Johnston, who's in Chicago and amazing. Mm -hmm. Totally recommend her for everything. She is. I feel blessed. I feel like she's this fairy godmother that I'm so <laughs> lucky to have been connected with because I met her with Moxie, my second book, and I was still in Iraq. So a lot of our relationship was established long distance, and she's amazing to work with. Highly recommend her. So she talked to Susie for me. I had her. I, I hired her to publicize Duende. Um, in terms of the blurbs, I asked the writers that I knew, and a lot of them, truthfully, I met through Cheryl with Moxie. And I, I have to say, like the Chicago community, writing community, is very, very friendly, very welcoming, very open. A lot of the people who blurb my books, when they did, I hadn't met them in real life yet because I was in Iraq and I was really touched by the kindness. Like Patricia Ann McNair has been so generous. You know, she interviewed me for Hypertext, for Moxie. She interviewed me for another magazine. She gave me blurbs. I mean, mm -hmm. she didn't have to do that. that. I mean, that was just so nice of her. I didn't know her then. Rachel Swearingen, we read together for Story Week that Cheryl had put me in touch with when I was still in Iraq. And then she blurbed for me again. And I only have just met her at Printer's Row. So again, super generous. Kate, very generous. Um, so I feel really lucky. Don DeGrazia, I feel really lucky. The Chicago writing community has been really welcoming. Rachel employed that same uh, that same strategy as well. We, we talked to Rachel earlier in the year on this show. She was one of our Book of the Year award winners. She was able to successfully get her descriptions of her book and blurbs about her book in a number of industry publications, websites, and she she got some she got some really critical acclaim uh, and and some critical commentary from from some wonderful authors. I don't want to hate linger here too long because you've got a lot to say and there's a lot a lot to get to with you. Uh, but I think this is important and and we we kind of cover the gamut here for uh, as a writer's resource but I th and I think this this affects a lot of a lot of writers although I, I don't I have a feeling it doesn't affect you that much. What do you do about writer's block or getting stuck in a story which I know uh, especially with with fiction it's it's about reality and you can follow a vein you can follow a bit of dialogue almost to an absurd length and it becomes cliche, or it tells too much of the story, or it waters down the story, and kind of holding back is is important. But that's that's a that's a a decision that you need to make in time. I'd love to know your strategy for for telling that most realistic fiction story. Okay, so first I have writer's block. Just that's be clear, and a lot uh -huh. of the stuff I write is bad. Um, and I think we have to give ourselves permission to write badly before we can write well. Okay. Um, I work differently than I think other writers do. And that I, Kate, Kate Weisel and Jeremy T. Wilson and I did an event together for Duende up at Bookends and Beginnings. I'm trying to plug all the people who've been very good to me. So <laughs> in Evanston, Bookends and Beginnings, lovely space. And we were talking about how we write. And like I 
I'm create a preamble, which, so this is a technique I learned at the writer's studio in New York and they have online classes. And this mm -hmm. is where I learned everything I know about writing. I don't think I learned that much in my MA. I really learned how to write at the writer's studio. So I am internally grateful to the very generous faculty there and will sing their praises till my dying days. So they have like a thing that you set out when you begin like an exercise, you have a craft preamble where you decide, are you know, a first person or third person persona narrator? What's mm -hmm. the mood? What's the tone? What's the technique you're trying out? And I set that um, really describing the personality of the persona narrator, even if it's an I, so mm -hmm. it's not me. So I have that emotional distance. And then I, I start over every day. So I constantly revise. Um, I also write a lot from research and from real life. Mm -hmm. I try to get away from that in Duende, but I found that social justice issues such as racism, especially against the Catano uh, community in yeah. Spain, um, recidivism for people, nonviolent offenders, mm -hmm. which was actually the grain of where this book, this story had come from. And urban blight still crept into the stories, even though I'm trying to get away from that. Sometimes writing from reality can be restrictive because you feel like you have to serve the facts, but that's where the creation of the persona narrator is so helpful because it gives um, a container to provide the distance to reorient, you know, a time sequence mm -hmm. or condense mm -hmm. and then fictionalize from fact. I mean, I'm doing that memoir, like, oh, it didn't really happen that way. Well, I can give myself permission to condense these, you know, composite people yeah. into one or incidents into one. You know, we, we spoke with Libby Fisher Hellman, who wrote A Bend in the River, was one of the 2021 Book of the Year uh, award winners. And it's it's about two Vietnamese sisters. And she had visited Vietnam as, as a tourist very briefly. But I asked her about cultural appropriation and speaking speaking for a, a Vietnamese woman how would how would she react to that and she said at at the core all women share a share a, a common culture a commonality they share the female body and 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 all that comes with it and all that men often tragically or catastrophically, tend to impose upon that. How would you describe, because we're, we're talking about writing with purpose, how would you describe your purpose as a writer? Activism, commentary, observation, something else? Usually what happens is I read something in the news and it gets a hold in my brain and then it just okay. comes out in the okay. writing. So when I worked on Moxie, which was published by Tortoise Books, another mm -hmm. Chicago publisher, Mm -hmm. um, Khalif, the Khalif Browder story was breaking in the New Yorker. And for people who don't know, Khalif was a youth, uh, Bronx youth who was accused of stealing a backpack and spent close to three years in Rikers Island, much of it in solitary confinement. And he refused to take a plea deal because he knew he hadn't stolen the backpack. Mm -hmm. and it was three years of his life. Messed up his high school. He didn't get to graduate or go to prom and really messed him up emotionally, ended up killing himself. And so reading about that story when it was first breaking I, I couldn't my my brain i was like a dog with a bone i couldn't let it go and so i ended up making khalif browder a character in moxie 
And when I sent that book out, I had a New York agent tell me it was near impossible to think somebody would be held at Rikers for three years for stealing a backpack. And I thought, this is literally your backyard. I thanked her for her criticism and I sent her a bunch of links to Jennifer Lonegren's outstanding reporting in The New Yorker. And that really convinced me that people don't kind of know what's going on. I mean, I was yeah. definitely, what I'm doing, what I'm realizing in right, working this memoir right now is how much I was steeped in American exceptionalism before I worked abroad for almost mm-hmm. 10 years mm-hmm. and how I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to disabuse myself of, <laughs> of American exceptionalistic viewpoints to realize the privilege that I exercised just by the luck of being born white in America. I mean, it's not as lucky being a girl as it is being a boy, but I didn't earn this privilege. It's simply by luck. And and because so, I, I have it better than, you know, 95% of the planet probably, mm-hmm. which is an insane way to think about it. If you you know, when you were raised with this idea that we're all created equal and the world is just, the world isn't just, and we're not, we're not all created equal and we don't have equal access. That's a big motivation behind the writing. With Room 308, which turned into Jinwar, I really wanted to spur the conversations that would promote change. Because at that point, Kristen Gillibrand had put legislation up about taking rape cases out of the military chain of command and it would never get adopted. And and what that means is if I'm in the military and I'm attacked by someone in the military, I can't go to the police station and register a complaint and have a normal judicial procedure. I have to Mm -hmm. go to a special military tribunal within the military. And often the people who adjudicate those cases are the perpetrators. So there's no justice for victims. And And there's a whole lot of bad stuff that goes along if you are brave enough to report. President Biden recently signed a bill that will take the military cases out of this military tribunal and put it in a separate tribunal that already exists for other types of cases in the military. But we'll see if it really gets put into practice because um, sexual assault cases are up 18% post-COVID in the military. And that's a statistic that's about two, three weeks old. So it's still an ongoing problem. So my my point was writing them was to raise awareness to hope that people will maybe have conversations that inspire change or to promote empathy. I have a story in this collection about why girls in the West joined jihad. And I mean, I wrote that in like 2014, 2015, when we didn't really know a lot about it. But if you look at people who are like who had been drawn to the ISIS utopia before they realized what it was, they were usually alienated in the communities where they grew up. Mm-hmm. That we're not always welcoming to people who we designate as other. And uh, I guess part of the reason I write the stories that I write is to to show the other side. And I can tell you this because uh, I found, first of all, I found I found just the mechanical rendering uh, of that particular scene, the, the the Facebook chat room scene, was innovative and and exception but that that conversation that that push and pull conversation was was really was really insightful growing up in uh in a small rural community i also took it this way i found a commonality between girls that i knew growing up who who liked or who were obsessed about bad boys Guys that got into trouble, stole cars, uh, beat up somebody, whatever. 
but they 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 liked that there were there was a there was a a certain there was a certain girl who liked that and and i i have a feeling that that template that you write about with jihadi girls or girls being tricked or cajoled or brought into convinced into into a jihadi lifestyle is an easy overlay to a thousand different experiences in 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 life around the world for young women do you agree with that um, I think they're a little different. I mean, you, I, you and I, I believe are around the same age. And so the yeah. same generation mm-hmm. and the, the girl, like the good girl that loves the bad boy. Hi, Grace Lightning, Danny Zuko. We were brought <laughs> up with it. These are yeah. our, our, yeah. our, our coming of age stories. And we're yeah. told, you know, yeah. it builds right on to all of our, um, sleeping beauty and Cinderella's and there's going to be a, a hero to save the damsel mm-hmm. in distress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the next iteration is the bad boy, like the rebel without a cause. He's not, you know, it's Diane Lane and the Outsiders. It's not, <laughs> they're not really bad. He's going to like true love will save him. And yeah, all yeah. that crap that we're brought up on, which for me is maybe misogynistic is a little too harsh, but certainly patriarchal because yeah. at the kernel of it is men in power. Whereas mm-hmm. I think with jihad, it was more societal alienation. Okay. You know, a lot of the women and, and men who joined ISIS when it, before the brutality was fully known was this idea of we're going to create a utopia. This was the sales pitch. We're yeah. going to create a utopia where everyone has a, a voice and we stand and create it together. Mm-hmm. And if you've been growing up in maybe a, a lower middle income neighborhood outside Paris and everyone looks at you like crap and your first generation like often your parents really enjoyed being in France because they came Mm -hmm. from a colonial empire where life was brutal and violent but their kids grew up alienated from a society where they felt like they probably should have belonged and they we were set their citizens and so the, the ISIS utopia had an appeal I don't think people were really aware of what was happening with the Yazidi community at that time. Mm -hmm. So in August of 2014, ISIS stormed Sinjar Mountain and, um, you know, killed a lot of the men, enslaved the women and uh, children and took them as sex slaves and married them and basically tried to commit genocide on a population that's already a minority population in northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. So those people obviously knew the brutality of ISIS, but I don't think those stories were widely known. Mm-hmm. If you weren't watching mm-hmm. Kurdish politics, which mm-hmm. barely mm-hmm. most of the world really wasn't until the Peshmerga were so instrumental in defeating ISIS and Mosul, which goes yeah. into 15 yeah. and 16. And then again, with the U.S. kind of turning their back on the Kurds in 19 when Trump took our troops out and let Turkey go in and annihilate them in northern Syria. But again, that's something that most people don't know about, don't care about. If they're not watching international politics and they're watching domestic politics, they don't care. You know, I I think that in the United States, there's a lot of a mentality. I care about me and mine. I don't really care about the person to the right and left of me. I care about me and mine. Whereas in other countries I've lived in, People really care about the person to the right and the left of them. Not to say mm-hmm. it's Shangri-La. With that comes mm-hmm. a lot of, you always have to watch what happens with your reputation and any with a scandal can lead to an honor killing. So I'm not saying one is great and one is bad. I'm saying they're different and they each have strengths and weaknesses. Doesn't writing 
and and your writing does this exceptionally well because we um we can surf and click and find all manner of shocking material on the web so how do you as as a writer bridge the gap and take experience or writing or narrative out of the realm of shock to affecting the reader emotionally? So I write for an NGO called Preemptive Love. That's my day job. Mm -hmm. And we're really careful about the photos we use. We never want to sensationalize or disrespect the dignity of the people that we serve. We call the people we serve our our migrant friends. We call them Mm -hmm. friends because we're in it for the long haul. Our, our thing is, you know, first in, last out, we stake to rebuild the communities to disrupt cycles of violence. Mm-hmm. To go from sensational to affecting the reader is where the power of literature comes in to create a story, to create yeah. a, a three-dimensional yeah. character that's created from a place of empathy. Reading fiction, there are there's schools of thought and research done on it that reading fiction is one of the best ways to build empathy for other, which is another reason I write what I write, because we can literally put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. We're such a storytelling species. Uh, yeah. we, we began as a storytelling species, and 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 it, it's it's hardwired us into us now. I was just checking a name. Rebecca Mackay was doing um a panel at Printer's Row last week. Okay. And she said, you know, reading is the only art form that we experience through the eyes of another character, which is essential yeah. to the building of the empathy part. Which I oh I found uh, which struck me because I I have an essay coming out in a book. That's being edited by Alan Kaplan from Smith mm-hmm. College. It'll be out at the end of the year. And it's about writing from trauma. And so I, I talk about writing Jinwar actually to going from fictionalizing from research to fiction, to, you know, mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. research to fiction and the role of empathy in that. But there's also the empathy for the reader. So the reader is affected if I've created a character that's three-dimensional and resonates. And I think a lot of that is powered by mood, which will come from the imagery, which for the way I write, which is not the truth true for everyone, but comes from my emotional connection to the material. So if I'm not connected emotionally to what I'm writing, then it's usually crap and it won't make it into a final version. But if it does, it's probably going to fall flat for the reader because there won't be, it won't sensorily and viscerally affect the reader. It'll, it just, the prose will be lacking. For me, that comes from the emotional connection, like the main character in Moxie is a disfigured supermodel. She's in the wrong place at the wrong time, bomb blast, half her face is disfigured. I've obviously met a supermodel and I'm not disfigured, but I do know what it's like to be bullied and have kids pick on me because my nose was big and my eyebrows were too thick and my bottom lip was too thick. And, you know, I know what that's like. I can, I can draw on that emotional connection and then hand it over to the given circumstances of the character I'm writing. Let me ask you where where that empathy comes from. And if it comes from your experiences, because you render some of these characters so intimately. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll read this this paragraph. It struck me as getting to getting to a depth that that I thought was important. When I was nine, I got a wart in the middle section of my ring finger. When it uh, when it became the size of an aspirin, I showed it to mom. She took me down to the emergency room to have it burned out uh, before it spread. The doctor tried to give me a shot 
of Novocaine to numb my finger. The needle was so big that I said, no, mom warned me that the burning was going to hurt worse than the shot and that I should still get it. Still, I wouldn't give in. Mom tried to hold my other hand, but I wouldn't let her. I didn't close my eyes or look the other way. I watched as the wart was smoked off, charring my flesh and my finger bled. Being in this in the Red Security Museum feels sort of like that. Everyone can relate to that experience, at least uh, at least to some degree, uh, a jarring experience with a doctor. Um, but you render it so so deeply and so intimately here that it it really defines this character. Thank you. I mean, thank you for such a close read and um, appreciation for the nuances of Chateau with that character. The Red Security Museum is a museum in Sulaymaniyah that commemorates um, Saddam Hussein's killing of Kurds, especially a lot of the Barzanis and the Barzan villages. And so when you walk in, there's shards of glass on the roof of the like on the inner lower ceiling and it's for villages he's burned and there's uh-huh. like the raping room you know there was their inner chamber and an outer chamber so w- women whose husbands were wanted again women paid the price they would be picked up and they would be raped and tortured because one they couldn't catch their husbands or two to to make the women i guess talk if they thought they knew where the their husbands were yeah. and then the women who were in the room waiting also that anticipation and build up a fear. And there's a room for kids that were killed and tortured and like their ages were lied about because you weren't supposed to torture and execute people who are younger than 18. And then obviously the torture chambers for the male prisoners. So that's the Red Security Museum and there are tanks, you know, old derelict tanks outside of it as well. So I did have a wart, it was burned off. I did take the Novocaine. The rest of the scene with mom is not real, but I do remember I do remember wanting, I looking for some device when I was yeah. writing. But Chateau was like, uh, to me, she's, I was, it was like my first, I wrote that story. I wrote that story in, at the writer's studio. And I was fascinated. It was my first year in Iraq, Northern Iraq, Kurdistan. I was fascinated. I was working at this premier international high school, how these, these young girls, like, adolescent girls which is a terribly hard age for girls anyway mm-hmm. you know their parents were part part of the diaspora that had gone to like sweden or canada the united states these very open societies and now that kurdistan was free the or safe the parents had brought them back and i was like how do these girls who have their hormones raging and it's such a tough time anyway yeah. now deal with the yeah. society where they can't wear shorts anymore outside you know, their houses probably. And that's where Shachu came from. She's really kind of a, a composite of a lot of my uh, high school students. I was teaching um, composition literature writing there. So I think it would, it's in my own experience. I was, I was a very well-liked teacher. I really loved my students. I, they were very, after I earned their trust, they were really open with me. So I could use a lot of what I think I learned from them. Yeah. Um, and then use imagination and fuse it all together to create a character whose humanity and realness would be communicated to the reader through details. You are, as as a writer, really a funnel to the world, accepting everything and and cataloging every experience and every 
um, every impression and every moment. And, and that's really important to a writer, how important it was for you to actually be on the ground with these women in in northern Iraq. And if you could have written this story without being there. and I could not have written the book without have got, without having lived there. Just like knowing the history and the details. For example, old old leaves on new trees. You mm-hmm. know, all the trees were cut down because people were burning, burning trees for yeah. during the fighting post onfall. Mm-hmm. I would never have known that. Um, I not and not everything in the book is lived. We're talking about writing with purpose. Would you have been a writer otherwise, or? Did did being there and and meeting these women and seeing these women was it a launching pad for a greater sense of purpose that enabled you to write? I started writing in 2010. Mm-hmm. I took my first class with the writer's studio then and I was living in New York. I had already lived and worked in Poland, Turkey, and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I was already using Ukraine in some of the stories that I had written. But Iraq, it was just, it was inspiring because it was exciting in a different way. Like I can remember, I think it was a South Korean set of dancers had come and we were in an auditorium and I was like a few rows away from the prime minister and the president of Kurdistan whose kids went to our high school. Like when, I'm never going to be anywhere close to Barack Obama's children, right? It would Mm -hmm. be like that. So you had these pops of things that were exceptional and missed very grueling working hours and a lot of just working full time. I mean, Mm -hmm. depending Mm -hmm. on how seriously you take teaching. I taught writing and I think that you can only really affect change if you give a lot of meaningful feedback, which takes tons and tons of grading time. So I worked a lot. I mean, I would be the person on the bus. We'd had a bus that would take us to the hyper mall to do our grocery shopping. And I'm the person grading on the, uh, grading on the bus, constantly working. <laughs> was it, was it a bit of the exotic, the exotic scenery or the exotic culture, the, the stepping outside of your comfort zone that uh, that helped it helped inspire it more than say Poland mm. or Ukraine or no I mean Poland I was in Poland for six months it was my first teaching job and it was a terrible teaching method it was called the Gallon method which I don't think is even used anymore it's an EM it's an ESL method and I was and I didn't you know I was floundering and then Turkey I worked at an, a school a Dersani a language school yeah. that had great staff and it's really where I learned how to teach well but it took a lot of time and so I wasn't writing yet and then in Ukraine I wasn't writing I was teaching I I feel like I really came into my own there I had a group of oligarch, oligarchs wives that stayed with me for two years they just kept studying with me and I would mm-hmm. teach their kids in the night and then the beginning of the middle class and I that was one of the first countries where I had very strong relationships with local people and not expats Mm -hmm. um and it was i wasn't writing yet and so when i came back i floundered in new york i couldn't find gainful employment i had a terrible job at a startup i was back waiting tables at a very mediocre restaurant where people thought i was an ins agent because there was like (laughs) you know you're educated what are you working here it was it was like a dark time and i started writing and that's when i met at a book signing uh jerry van dyke who uh-huh. became a mentor to me. And I, I I thank him with every book because I 
I would not be a writer, I think, if yeah. I hadn't had yeah. his support and push to go to Iraq. He was just instrumental and he gave me great advice. He said, live your life and then write about it. So I think that's what happened in Iraq. I started living my life and I was meeting characters that were... <laughs> One of the ministers of Christian affairs is one of the most hedonistic individuals I've ever met. And if like 10% of what he says is true, it's still pretty, pretty fascinating. And he was just a character, you know, like those kinds of things were inspiring. And from them came story. At that international high school, we had Sweden's most notorious sex offender working there wow. because someone hadn't done it background check yeah i have an essay about it that i recently finished i mean stories like that are incredible and i like you just like what <laughs> i was also able to volunteer with different aid groups i volunteer with acted a few times and mm -hmm. uh, with a couple other organizations which were also amazing experiences i so i don't want to i don't want to seem like i'm fetishizing the experience no. but it inspired me because i felt awake and alive again after when I returned to New York, feeling kind of dead and desperate. When you step out of the United States and you go to, you go to another country, uh, especially another culture that's that's not at all similar to this one. It's shocking, eye-opening, and inspiring. But inherently, in in that process, you meet larger-than-life people. That might be you picking out personalities in those situations that any other place would be they, they they would be somewhat forgettable but in that in that particular environment they're they're larger than life and they need to be but often they're they're a they're a mile marker to to another culture or another uh, another way of seeing the world I, I would agree with all that. I I think you deserve the accolades that you want to give me about putting yourself in danger in a war zone. Because when you were in an active war zone and I was in Kurdistan after, with the exception of ISIS, but then I was in Germany for two years and came back in 15 and ISIS was no longer encroaching upon Erbil. It was more firmly entrenched in the cell. And then also a level of prosperity when you were in um, the Balkans, I think people were trying to survive. It was wartime. Yes, Whereas yeah. when I was in Kurdistan, yeah. it was much more peaceful. It was post a lot of conflict. The conflict was in Iraq, in the South, and it was booming. There was complete oil investment. I mean, there were Westerners all over Arabil at the time. So some of the why they stood out was because they stood out. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the situation. I mean, if if I'm in a nightclub and there's a gun check and the people I'm with is like, yeah, Barzani's rumored hitman's going to come join us for dinner. And he looks like he's walked off the cast of The Sopranos and he <laughs> opens his double breasted jacket and there's a gun on each in each inside pocket. Like yeah. that makes an impression and it would make an impression to me if it happened in a, you know, in a bar in Chicago. Yeah, indeed. And if you wrote in uh, in Jinwar, uh, I thought Gandhi was wrong because an eye for an eye didn't leave the whole world blind so much as it left part of the world regretting something it had done while the other part of the world went on doing what it always had done, sans regrets, and not doing something when something when someone took your eye 
or your virginity without asking was no picnic either. If you were teaching a class on the sailing cliches and enabling adages like an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, you could not have crafted a better example. And 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 I say that with having talked with, with authors and writers who are struggling with the use of cliches or the use of ad, adages and and when to when not to but I, I thought that was that was astounding thanks I love that character to me she's a real person like mm-hmm. I I feel like it's I'm like oh god I sound so arrogant I love the character I created it's not no that. you should you absolutely I love who- every one of the characters that I that I've created and and when I finish when I finish a story I am so deeply saddened when that I can't follow their continuing journey yeah i want to hang out with her she's funny this is a good way i think for me demonstrates emotional connection of the material i was connected and it 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 really flowed Mm -hmm. Uh, this was incredibly once i knew she worked in the hot dog truck shaped like a penis the rest of the story was fairly easy to write Mm -hmm. i wrote it quickly for me in there i read eve ansler's an apology because mm-hmm. it was when like we were all fixated on what makes a good apology because so many men in power in the United States were acting and inappropriately. And- if I can interrupt very, very briefly, there are multiple layers of of misogyny and patriarchy in that story. <laughs> I, I just may. I- yeah, no problem. This is a, where I pull back on the language and let the hopefully the mood carry it. Mm-hmm. So she's raped by her ex commanding officer. I don't think until that point, the reader knows that rape was what was her virginity. I think when people hear someone's raped, especially Americans, we, we think people are sexually active earlier, but they probably assumed she wasn't a virgin. And here you learn that she was, which just makes it even worse. And so I used a very simple way to slide it in and hope the impact would resound. There are so many times. Okay. So when I was a kid, I told you I was kind of bullied. I was really bullied. Mm-hmm. Um, so in high school, there was this kid who used to, really fat kid in my honors classes, who used to bully me mercilessly. My parents brought me up that you never attack someone uh, like for what they physically look like. It's, it's just unkind and you don't do it. And I just came to a breaking point and he was teasing me and he was like, Oh, you're like a moped, you're fun to ride. And you wouldn't want to be seen on one. I, I think I had my first kiss at 16 and I must've been 17 at this point junior, senior year. So I didn't really even know what he was alluding to. And I just remember being so frustrated. I was like, well, at least I'm not fat. And as soon as I said it, I regretted it. I was so full of shame and humiliation at myself. I I knew my parents would be really disappointed in me. And I could see that he saw that that comment cost me just more to say than him to hear. And he sneered. I was like, you know, I, you know, gutted again. And so I, I think that was at play writing this character because she acts out outside of that mm-hmm. that club where the women are for sale. And I don't know if that man who approached her was truly going to hurt her or not. And she doesn't know, but she does something yeah. and she ha- doesn't know how badly she's hurt him. And it's something she has to live with. And I felt like it was important to have her have those kinds of regrets. Because in stories of survival, we might do things that, I mean, this is moral injury, that 
disrupt our own moral codes or the moral code of the society in which we function. And then we have to either live with it and learn how to forgive ourselves and move on. And that came from the emotional connection of calling this kid fat who had been bullying me when I was about 17. That's where that came from. Was it a natural decision to write that character in first person? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. She started talking. So she started talking to me, which is great when I can hear the character. That's how the narrator of Moxie came. And that's why Duende was so difficult to write because that near that book is so lyrical and that main character is, I think, kind of hiding from herself almost that I couldn't mm-hmm. quite hear her. Also about Jinwar, it was prescient. I wrote it and finished it in May, 2019. And there's that line about when she goes in to train the women in Jinwar mm-hmm. about you know, how to use the rifles, which will turn out to be helpful. When Trump withdrew the US troops and Turkey attacked Northern Syria, I believe that the real live women in Jinwar were happy that they knew how to defend themselves, which happened yeah. in reality later. Yeah. I did know from an aid worker There's a Jordanian aid worker I I was friends with who worked for an Italian NGO and they would go into Northern Syria to do other kinds of humanitarian aid relief. Mm -hmm. And they always had to kind of sneak in. That's where the stuff with the water, I had to research that. I wasn't able to do the trip myself. The aid, like the Syrian government did not want to have anybody helping the Kurdish women um, because they they don't want the Syrian Kurds to join with the Iraqi Kurds and, and fight the for their own independent Kurds, homeland. Yeah. Right. And so when Turkey started bombing the YPG, which is the armed group that helped the U.S. coalition forces defeat ISIS, they had to actually appeal to Assad's government for protection, mm-hmm. which has got to be the ultimate horrible having, having to do. I bring it all up just to say that, again, mostly women but vulnerable people are paying the price for hubris and power mm-hmm. struggles. They're really just kind of caught in a crossfire of it. Yeah, on the on the radio show, uh, Carrie Kendall and I spoke with uh, Zara Dogan uh, through a translator, the Kurdish artist who was imprisoned for simply painting a picture of of a Turkish attack on on a Kurdish village. And um, I, I don't think I don't think people realize half of the the tragedy of that that story and and hopefully they will perhaps perhaps through through you uh alex poppy is the author of four critically acclaimed novels in 2021 she was an artist in residence at the atlantic center for the arts where she began working on a memoir about her time working in northern iraq when is uh when is that coming out i don't know i hope i can okay. by end of year all right <laughs> like all right uh alex poppy's latest book is duende a coming of age a novella about mothers and daughters her website is alexpoppy.com thank you so much oh my god thank you and thank you for reading my book so carefully i'm touched it was a pleasure speaking with you and while we're here rick kempfer and dave stern spoke with best-selling author scott tarot about his latest novel suspect adapting books to film and the cubs Here's a bit of that conversation. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast. An Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Man Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. Hi, Dave. This week's guest is a uh, 
prolific best-selling author, 14 best-selling works of fiction, including Presumed Innocent, Burden of Proof, one of my favorites, uh, The Last Trial, and he has a brand new one out called Suspect. It, is it? Please welcome to the show the father of the legal thriller, which I'm I, I'm allowed to say. I saw John Grisham say that you are the <laughs> are the father of the legal thriller. Welcome to the show, Scott Tarot. How are you? Thank Thank you very much. Nice to be with both of you. The, the books that I wrote, because that's what I was absorbed with, are much more steeped in the you know the realities of being a lawyer you kept your fingers in the legal profession while you're right are you still a lawyer or are you you i i i am still a licensed lawyer in the state of illinois um and i retired from the former sun and shine firm so i can now go back to calling it uh in uh, august of 2020 but i have two pro bono cases that are keeping me occupied I remember saying to myself, well, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll quit. I'll, I'll think about quitting when I'm 50 and then it was 55. And, you know, it kept, it kept marching ahead till I got to 70 when the law firm became much more serious about my retiring. Oh. Um, <laughs> You're saying it was hey, kind Scott, of, uh, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, they got, they, they got these rules and, um, blah, I, I blah, blah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly d- didn't have a compelling case to be made an exception. So, Well, uh, thanks for allowing us a sneak peek at Suspect. Uh, I read just enough to get me excited uh, to devour the whole thing, which I'm going to do. And I'm sure your uh, fellow fans will uh, feel the same way. Um, and there's, there are things about there that are familiar. For instance, it takes place in Kindle County, which is your, your fictional county. And then the granddaughter of Sandy Stern who is uh, right. the famous attorney that goes all the way back to presumed innocent, is right. the main character uh, for this uh, story. Tell us a little bit about her, about Pinky. Pinky, you know, in some ways is a un- look an unusual-looking person, you know, particularly because she wears this goth jewelry that makes it look like she's got a common nail through her nose. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she's inked from... As she describes herself from neck to ankle and, uh, you know, the usual colorful haircut. But the outward manifestations um, are the work of a, a real sense that she's a misfit. Right. And, uh, you know, that's common to people in adolescence. But this young woman has now reached her 30s uh, and is beginning um, to accept the fact that she's just not going to be like everybody else. And to some extent, she's wired a little differently. She can be absolutely obtuse to social signals, almost to the point that you would think she's somewhere on the spectrum. Um, and at other times, the fact that she's that much of an outsider uh, allows her to see through things much faster than everybody else sounds like a fun character to write oh she was yeah she's a lot of fun to write and um you know she doesn't she's not detained by matters of legality as an investigator so that um you know she's always 
breaking the rules for what she thinks are good reasons. Uh, and, you know, instead of the following the rules, her motto is, you know, don't get caught. Uh, and, uh, and, and certainly never tell your boss what you're doing. As I said, she's a little bit of an unusual person. She's, um, you know, attracted to both men and women. Uh, and uh, can't really imagine living with anybody else, you know, except her grandfather. Uh, and that's now over because uh, he's moved into assisted living. Um, and she's still, she's still driving around um, in her, you know, punk slash goth um, type look in, in his old Cadillac, uh, which, of course, is yet, yet another incongruous. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know, this, this sounds like a, just a wonderful topic for a Netflix series, you know, or, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, we have no connections by the way. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but I do have to tell you that you're, you know, you're ahead of yourselves in the sense David Kelly has optioned this. Oh, he has so, already. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, it is the the deal is made and, uh, we'll see what David does with it. Um, a movie is a very separate artistic enterprise. And, you know, it's going to work from the outside, not the inside, because, you know, all you got is the camera right. uh, and the voices. Um, and, you know, it's got to be visual. And, and so it's any novel is going to get transformed because of the differences in the in the two media. You know, there were in the days of movies, um, you know, time limitations. These days, the streaming series suits novels much, much better. Right. Um, because, you know, you have time for the character development that the, that the novelist has attempted. Talk to us about your rock and roll band. Are you still, in, <laughs> oh, are you still yeah. doing gigs with, uh, with uh, yeah, Stephen King yeah. and Dave Barry? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, rock, the Rock Bottom Remainders played again uh, in Nantucket in... Um, in June, Steve yeah. King was uh, in our was with us in Minneapolis when we played um, right before the pandemic. But uh, uh, Dave Barry, uh, who's always there, refers to Steve as an emeritus member of the band. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. So it's Dave. What and, do you play? Um, what's what's your instrument? Oh, I, I I am. As somebody asked that when we were in, in Nantucket um, and Ridley Pearson, you know, another really fine writer yeah. uh, was listening in on the question. Somebody said, what, what, what does Scott play? And Ridley finally looked up and said what I should have said eons ago. He said, Scott plays the fool. So <laughs> <laughs> this is the danger of interviewing rock star slash authors. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I, I really do play the fool. You know, I am up there to prove that the rest of them don't take themselves Too very serious. seriously, because if they did, they wouldn't let me on stage. <laughs> Let's talk about another thing you do for fun, and that is, um, and probably in pain also, is you follow the Chicago Cubs. Yes. Um, and you, yes. I don't know if you know this, but Dave and I were publishers, and you appeared in one of our books called Cubs Sessions uh -huh. uh, with Becky uh, Maxwell and Randy Richardson. Right, and Randy, you, uh, right. I remember, with, you know, dealing with Randy on this book. So Yeah. 
So I I didn't realize this about you. I didn't know that you're a third generation Cub fan. I am. And uh, I have written a book called Every Cub Ever, which is about literally every single Cub that ever played. Uh, yeah, Scott, so, ask Rick how so, long it took him and what what better use of his time could have been those 10 years. When I handed it to Dave, he said to me, have you ever kissed a girl? Yeah. <laughs> but I think I that's have, Yeah, I have to say that... Um, how do you update this every year? Uh, I update it at the end of every season. Because, yeah. uh, you know, um, the la- last year's Cubs, what, they had oh, don't more players, get me started. Don't get me started, more players Scott. on I, their roster yeah. than they, any team in the major yeah, leagues. Yeah. In, in history, yeah. in one yeah. year, yeah. And yeah. I think they're trying to go for the record this year. So Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah, every time a every time a cub gets injured and there's a new call up, it's like, oh, come on here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so what did that one moment, uh, November third, twenty sixteen? Yeah. What did that one moment I, mean? I'm a Sox to you? fan. I'm going to put the mic down because I don't want to. Okay. Hear it. I just, yeah. you know, I want to talk to a fellow cub fan about this because uh, I know that it meant something to you. Oh, it was. You know, I literally went out the back door um, here in Evanston and I, you know, just screamed at the top of my lungs. It finally happened. His first thought about hearing every cub ever is how much of a pain in the butt it would be to update, update it, it right. every year. And it is. And he's but... 100% correct about that. <laughs> but anyway, we'll be back again soon with another episode of Madusha Men Celebrity Interview on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. RadioMisfits.com And you can catch the whole interview with Scott Turow as well as a great list of writers on Minutia Men's Celebrity Interview with hosts Rick and Dave at RadioMisfits.com Dave Stern is a board member for the Chicago Writers Hall of Fame and Rick Hempfer is a Chicago Writers Association board member. A link to Radio Misfits is in the notes below and that will do it for this episode of Chicago Writes. And remember to click the subscribe button and receive notifications on future podcasts. And don't forget to share this program and all of the informative programs in our archive to inspire the writers in your life. Our theme song, Midnight Ride, is courtesy of Dino Olovchich. Find Dino's music on Spotify. Chicago Writes is brought to you exclusively by the Chicago Writers Association, chicagowrites.org. Special thanks to all of our guests and especially to you for tuning in. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Until next time.